All right, if you're just joining us for the first time or if you've kind of been hit or miss this summer, I know lots of people are traveling or they've got family stuff or they're just lazy and they go on a hike or something like that, whatever it is. Uh, for weeks now, we've kind of worked our way through the book of Daniel as a means of framing this conversation that we've been having around what it means to follow Jesus in a culture where following Jesus is not socially acceptable. So last week, we had our friend Bethany Allen here to close the series proper um, with the apocalyptic literature of Daniel 12. Really weird stuff. And uh, it all kind of speaks to this idea of hope in the coming kingdom of God. If you weren't here, go back and listen to the podcast. I thought it was fantastic. But interestingly, over the course of the last two months, in conversations that I've had personally or um, in exchanges that have been relayed back to me, two recurring motifs have surfaced around this idea of a creative minority. The more that we talk about our role as a creative minority, um, we are becoming increasingly aware that, one, this is a really significant conversation. Um, there's something here, I think, of great lasting significance for our small but growing community. In fact, at a pre-gathering prayer, one of our leaders said that, I feel like this is more than just a series. I feel like this is going to be kind of a, a lasting um, DNA piece to, to Van City and to where we're at. So that's the first thing, that there's something here that's more than just, oh, we talked about that one summer. And then number two, this is really hard. This is a, a difficult conversation, navigating that narrow middle between separating from the host culture and or else disappearing into the sweep of its current is a very difficult thing. In a couple of weeks, we'll be into the vision series for the new year and for Van City, and some truly exciting changes are coming down the pipe that I've honestly uh, been so excited about. They've been years in the making, frankly. So, so rather than simply wade through the complex waters of the summer and then move on and never speak of it again, I thought we might end our Life in Exile series with something of an epilogue, if you will. So the plan for tonight is to quickly recap the whole series. Don't worry, we'll do it efficiently. And, uh, and the reason is that the conversation has been long, it's been complex, it's been really nuanced and detailed, and because the ideas represented here, we desperately want to sink in as a community. So we'll talk a bit about where we've been, then we'll talk more about what Daniel has to say to the modern world, and then we'll conclude this sort of epilogue with a time of prayer. Sound good? You guys in? Thank you. That was a hearty nod. That's, the, that's exactly what I'm looking for. All right, let's get to work. Now first, to recap, like it or not, we have found ourselves living in the midst of a new and unique cultural moment. Over the last two centuries or so, the world has changed, and particularly for those who call the Western world home. Specifically, we have moved in two or three centuries from a Christianized culture, for better or for worse, whatever that means, into a thoroughly post-Christian culture. That to say, our cultural value system is frequently at odds with the way of Jesus. And consequently, we're seeing the outworking of three great cultural shifts. Number one, we have gone from a majority to a minority. There was a time in the Western world when people who profess faith in some kind of external authority, whether that's Jesus or God or something else, they made up the majority of the Western world. Now they make up the minority, statistically. We have moved from the center to the fringe. There was a time when people of faith um, enjoyed a sort of 
seat, a welcome seat in the hub of what it meant to make and create culture. We've moved from well-respected to disrespected. Believe it or not, there was actually a time in the last uh, few decades when pastors or priests or men and women of faith were thought of generally in the eyes of uh, the culture at large as people of upright morality or respectable or um, someone that you'd go to with a question or a thought. Um, that has changed very much so. Now, followers of Jesus, by and large, are considered uh, ignorant or backward thinking or uneducated or uninformed or, at even worse, dangerous to progressive society. And this is absolutely evidenced in a city like Vancouver and in urbanized areas of the Pacific Northwest proper. Last year, uh, I was having lunch nearby in one of uh, those restaurants that has a lot of long, like, communal sort of table setups. And I found myself in conversation with this couple that were sitting next to me. Um, there was a predictable exchange of pleasantries during which it came up somehow that uh, I host a podcast about movies. If you didn't know that, I host a podcast about movies. And this woman, she loved this idea of this podcast where it's just people arguing about movies. It's not that special. But she was like, oh, that's so wonderful. She started to talk to me about the spirituality of movies and the artistry of movies. And I was all in. I was like, yeah, absolutely. That's, that, yeah, that's the idea. And then the more we talked, the conversation sort of uh, moved into stranger places. And the more enthusiastic this woman became, there was all this talk about auras and about clairvoyance and um, divine femininity and transcendence. And I was sort of nodding along and eating and sure, yeah, that's getting weirder all the time. And then <laughs> she some, at some point stopped and sort of asked, uh, so is the podcast thing like your main gig? Is that like your job? And I was like, oh, no, I just do that for fun. I actually work at a church. I, uh, I'm a pastor. I teach the Bible and follow Jesus. And suddenly, this enthusiastic shaman of a woman was looking at me as though I had just admitted that, like, I was ruler of a small, uh, you know, tribe of elf people and that, like, you know, my name was King Itchy or something like that. The, the conversation withered up almost instantaneously. And my point is that we live in this unique cultural moment, in particular, in, uh, in places in the Pacific Northwest where uh, light conversation over finding your inner divine goddess is fine, uh, but if you bring up Jesus in the Bible, it's very weird. You're one of those people. What the heck is wrong with you that you think all these things? And as such, there are sort of three options for the church in this unique time that we're in. Um, if you think about things in terms of separatism and syncretism. So separatism, we can sort of all go live out on a hippie commune. We can homeschool all our kids. We can make our own stores and our own, uh, you know, auto shops and have our own music and our own radio stations so that we never have to mix in with the big, bad, icky world. It's just too nasty and we just white-knuckle it until Jesus comes back. That's separatism, and it always leads to legalism. Or we can go the way of syncretism, which is sort of disappear into the host culture, assimilate, go with the flow. And whenever the teachings of Jesus grate against our modern sensibilities, we just sort of update them or retranslate them so that they match up with us more. Syncretism always leads to theological liberalism or a compromise in the authority of the scriptures and the teachings of Jesus. And to be clear, syncretism is a far greater risk for most of the people in this room, in particular if you're 30 and under. Syncretism is way more risky than becoming a fundamentalist. Very few of you are fundamentalists. Maybe one or two of you are. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Balance us out. But we've been arguing all summer that a better way forward is what someone called Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs 
um, identified as a creative minority. It's a people that have been relegated to the fringe of culture, and even so, they reject separatism and they reject syncretism, and instead, they work for the healing and the renewal of the wider culture around them. This is the paradigm that's based on Jeremiah's letter to Daniel and his friends when they were in exile, when he wrote, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. And the city in this context meant evil Babylonian empire of, um, that had taken over Israel and led them all into exile. Uh, John Tyson defines the idea thusly, a creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships knotted together in a living network of persons in a complex and challenging cultural setting who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. I love that definition, especially stubbornly loyal relationships. Of course, to accomplish such a thing is no simple undertaking. Jonathan Sachs puts it this way, to become a creative minority is not easy because it involves maintaining strong links with the outside world while staying true to your faith, seeking not merely to keep the sacred flame burning, but also to transform the larger society of which you are a part. This is, as Jews can testify, a demanding and risk-laden choice. So a metaphor well represented in Scripture that best captures the moment that we're in culturally as followers of Jesus is this idea of exile. Thus, we've spent the summer in the book of Daniel, and we've used the book to sort of unpack seven specific ideas on life in exile. In chapter 1, we saw Daniel's strategy to... or. Pardon me, we saw Babylon's strategy to influence Daniel by, one, isolating him from his community and culture. They took him out of his home, from everything that he knew and loved, and plopped him right down in the middle of the biggest, baddest empire in the world. Number two, they opposed, imposed on him Babylonian history and culture and thinking, all things pagan. They were going to teach him and indoctrinate him and brainwash him in the way of Babylon. Three, they integrate Daniel into the life of Babylonian excess. So they put him before Babylonian women and wealth and food and drink. And then finally, four, they give Daniel a new Babylonian name to replace even his Hebrew identity as a title. And we read in the text still, even so, Daniel, quote, determined in his heart not to defile himself. From there, we talked about this idea of hard and soft power. If you guys remember, hard power is basically convert to Islam or die or something like that. That's coming at you, and that's the only choice that you have. Soft power is more like, how about another drink? Or we love each other. Who cares if we aren't married? Why shouldn't we express our love sexually? The culture we know is an excellent example of soft power. We are constantly bombarded on all sides with the opportunity and lure of compromise. Something like withhold that detail in order to obtain a new job or a new promotion, even if it means dishonesty. Buy the outfit that you don't need, even though it was sewn together by slaves and, frankly, you don't need more clothes. Have another drink. Visit that website, whatever it might be. And on a long enough timeline, the accumulation of a great many little sins acts as a numbing agent. And we wake up and we realize that our, law, our lives have been robbed of spiritual vitality, that God's presence is no longer as palpable as it once was. Um, it's a slow spiritual death. And the call of the creative minority is to a life without compromise. 
So Babylonian, Babylon called Daniel to compromise, but in chapter 2 we saw that Daniel had his own agenda, and it was to not only not be compromised, but to influence Babylon itself. We made the point that for most of us, the primary way that we will influence the culture around us is through our vocation or through our job, our work. Daniel combined four effective strategies with incredible mastery. So one was excellence in vocation. We read that he was better than anyone else, even in his understanding of Babylonian literature and history. He was excellent at his job. Two was his depth of character. Even though Daniel was bombarded on all sides with opportunities to compromise, to have lapses in moral character, he refused to do so. He determined in his heart not to defile himself. Three was faithfulness. Daniel spends most of his entire life in Babylon up into his old, old age, and he's there still working for the good of the city. He's faithful. And finally, it was the idea of witness. Everyone knew that Daniel was a loyal follower of a God called Yahweh. And that's how we expand our cultural influence, whether as a grade school teacher or a waitress or a barista or a CEO or the leader of a nonprofit, whatever it is, your primary way of influence will be through your vocation. In Daniel 4, we talked about this idea of non-participation. So uh, Evan Wickham was here just a couple of weeks ago, and we, we, uh, we talked about resistance. But before resistance happened, there's non-participation. So if you remember, Daniel 4, there's this golden statue, and all of Babylon is prostrate before this thing, bowing down. And four Hebrew boys say, no, we're just not going to bow down. There's no picket signs. There's no megaphone. They just say, we're just not going to do that. Frankly, it's that simple. And we talked about the seductive allure of nationalism for American people, the temptation to elevate America and America's interests and America's way of life to divine status and simply call it patriotism or call it loyalty or whatever you want to say. But when the empire calls us to pledge our allegiance to anything other than King Jesus, we simply say, no, we will not bow down and we don't participate. Then Evan came in a couple of weeks ago and he talked about resistance. When Daniel, a man who enjoyed the king's favor, he changed the shape of the empire for good by enjoying the king's favor. He also stood up to King Nebuchadnezzar, looked him in the face, and called him out for his oppression of the poor. There are times when non-participation, simply saying, no, we're just not going to do that, isn't enough. When the way of Jesus calls for creative, nonviolent resistance, in particular, on issues of injustice against the marginalized, the poor, and the oppressed. And we talked about, for example, the state of racial tension in our country right now. The way that today, for a follower of Jesus, it simply isn't enough to not be racist, but instead to stand in solidarity with the black community against systemic oppression. All this has a great deal to do with the idea of active resistance and with the idea of witness, which is where we went next. In chapter 6, Daniel is now this old man. He's elderly, and he's still obstinately resolute to his allegiance to Yahweh. He refuses to give up public prayer in spite of a royal decree to do exactly that. And consequently, Daniel gets thrown into this den of lions, if you know the story, only to be miraculously rescued by God. For Daniel... Faith was a very public affair. It can't be carried out otherwise. Everyone knew that Daniel was loyal to Yahweh. And the text points out several times that everyone around him was well aware of this. They even used it against him. And out of chapter 6, we pose this interesting question, um, which was troubling for a lot of us, myself included. Who is aware of your allegiance to King Jesus? 
uh, your boss or your coworkers or the, your fellow students or your extended family or your neighbors, the people that live on the same street? Does your life act as a witness to King Jesus and to his way of life? Does everyone know this is that person that follows that king? And from there, from the idea of witness, we moved on to chapter 7 to talk about the idea of empire. Daniel has this really horrifying dream with four beasts rising from this chaotic swell of the sea, and each of them represent four great empires of the world. And we said that America, for any and all of her favorable attributes, which there are many, America is indeed an empire. And sadly, empires are rarely a friend to the people of God. In fact, in the story of the scriptures, they are almost always an enemy. And disciples of Jesus then live in the shadow of the empire. They don't separate from the host culture, but they also do not bow before its violent, powerful rule. They embody an alternative way of life. And then finally, last week, our friend Bethany Allen brought the story to a close by moving to Daniel 12 and talked about the coming hope of the people of God who are now in exile. As disciples of Jesus in the Western world, we become more of an endangered species as the the people of God face the inevitable suffering of life itself. The temptation to relinquish hope is often a significant one. Hopelessness uh, abounds on a societal level, if you just stop and look around. The increasing financial crisis that began in 2008, the, the ever-increasing expanse between the rich and the poor, the, the polarization between the right and the left, the possibly the, the world's most outwardly nihilistic election season in modern memory, things feel like a mess. It feels, feels palpably chaotic. Nothing is static. Everything's falling apart. And as chaos reigns, it becomes increasingly difficult to imagine God's kingdom coming to Vancouver as it is in heaven. And yet, hope is still somehow the sturdy spinal column of the creative minority. Hope in two things, in the reality of the coming kingdom, a day when Jesus sets the world to rights once and for all, and hope that even now, today, God is up to something, and he continues to redeem and to restore and to mock Satan by bringing good out of evil, and we get to join in that process and that story. So these are the things to which we've drawn our attention over the last few months. But before this epilogue is finished, uh, I'd love to take just a few more minutes and comment once more about what Daniel has to say to the modern world. You know, it goes without saying that we don't live in Babylon during 6th century BC. So for those of us in Vancouver in 2016, I think there are three distinct challenges, if I had to boil them down to three, that you and I face as a creative minority and as the church. If you, turned, if you tuned out during that really fast recap, please wake up now, pay attention, write this down. This is important. The first danger that we face as the church, as a creative minority, is hyper-individualism. Young or old, you live in easily history's most individualistic generation ever. I believe this is especially true of urbanized areas in and around major progressive cities like Vancouver is one, the Portland metro area, great hubs of the Pacific Northwest, around Seattle as well. But this problem isn't unique to us and our corner of the country. Uh, sociologist Robert Putman wrote this book called Bowling Alone, and he writes about the way that architecture is often an indication of cultural shift. And he makes this observation that uh, Americans no longer build front porches, they build back decks. Um, they no longer shovel walkways, they shovel the driveway instead. The world is changing at a rapid rate. 
pollster Michael Adams writes uh, often about a winding journey from the death of God and the tradition, traditional notions of family and community to a highly individualistic population focused on personal control and autonomy to a new embryonic but fast-growing sense of human interconnectedness with technology and with nature. Of course, it doesn't take a sociologist to conclude that the alleged interconnectedness of, say, Instagram or Facebook is a myth. In fact, I would go as far as to say that these social media platforms, while not inherently evil, maybe, um, they work to disconnect human beings uh, one from another and from reality itself, I would argue. Recently, I learned of, this is going to sound funny and, and like I'm an old grumbling man, um, but... I heard this group of folks using the exact same arguments that people use for the validity of, say, Instagram to argue for the validity of uh, Pokemon Go, Pokemon Go. And, uh, and their arguments were, oh, it stewards community. It stewards, you know, a healthy connection with the outdoors and all this stuff. And again, I realize I'm exposing a certain amount of outdatedness here. But uh, though I know almost nothing about Pokemon Go, except for the yellow one that's really cute, looks like a cat. I know about that one. Um, I felt as though I had at least gathered that the game necessitates a maintained glare at a smartphone, right? You got to stare at your phone to play the game, right? So now I'm no scientist, but it sure seems to me <laughs> that one way to ensure that absolutely no community or appreciation of outdoors transpires whatsoever is to have someone stare at a phone. That's just me. I could be wrong. I haven't crunched the numbers on it yet, so come back to me. But... Writing on Daniel, uh, scholar Trimper Longman said this, The God of modern culture is not the God of the Bible, but is ultimately the self. This strange God demands worship that creates values different from those of Christianity since the individual is at the heart of the worship of secular culture. Personal gratification and self-realization are prized over any sense of any other person, any sense of community. Whether that community is the family, the church, the city, the nation, or the global community. All of this poses a clear enough threat uh, for the church in that the church, by, by definition, is a community of people, or at least it should be. And yet, for so many, being drawn away from this sort of privatized, just me and Jesus, and whatever cool church I select from a buffet of options that works for me personally, drawing someone away from that mentality and into a different idea of following Jesus in community is like pulling teeth. For others, man, just the idea of faithfully showing up on a Sunday is an outrageous expectation. To my estimation, this is the easy part. You know, uh, it, sure, it's hot sometimes. I get that. It won't be much longer by the grace of God. Thank you. The death of summer is imminent. Praise him. Um, <laughs> But even, even though it is hot often, uh, you know, there are songs and you've got friends here, at least a lot of us do. There's coffee or tea and sometimes there's even dinner. You hang around. It's not so bad. And yet the spiritual discipline of the Sunday gathering, and it is absolutely a spiritual discipline, often plays second fiddle to a sunny day or a ball game or a TV show or, you know, a relaxing night in or whatever it might be. That's this, let alone the daunting idea of sitting around a dinner table with a group of people mostly not self-selected and saying, okay, let's figure this out. How do we follow Jesus together? How do we carry one another's burdens as the family of God? 
Look at it the way that in just half a year, if you've been around for a little while, forgive me if you're new, just, but don't tune out. Forgive me, but don't tune out. Um, look at the way in just half a year, that's how long we've been doing this, six months, our community is marked by folks who come and go, which is only natural, folks that are hit, or, hit and miss, or whether on Sunday or in their communities. And I realize that that's part of life. But honestly, guys, quite frankly, I don't want to do this if we aren't in. I, don't, I have no reason to be here by myself. And I realize we won't all be in. I'm not saying if you sat down, you signed a contract or something like that. That's perfectly fine. But I think a lot of, uh, of, of us are sort of teetering on this decision or, or else we're oscillating between faithfulness and flakiness. And we're inviting you to sort of pick one or the other. I'm not here to offer you a, a better location like, oh, hang out and we get this much money and we're going to do this cool thing. Or we don't have those plans. I don't have like a hipper band for you or a nicer playground for your kids or a, a cooler Instagram account to follow or like a shorter commute. This one's closer to you or something like that. Um, I, we're not here to offer you a backup option to some other church in case you didn't make it to that one on time or something like that. I want to learn what it means to apprentice Jesus of Nazareth. And frankly, I can't do it by myself. I don't want to do it by myself. I want to do it in the context of the people of God, which means you guys. So the first great challenge for the church in exile is hyper-individualism. The second great challenge for the modern creative minority is anti-authoritarianism. Uh, so uh, after completing that last angry rant, I will now lobby the following critique at myself. Historically, I have often done quite poorly with being told what to do, so I'm with you on this one. But I'm not alone. In fact, uh, uh, America itself, if you guys know, is forged in rebellion. The Western world famously rejects gods and masters of all kinds. Um, in the book, A Secular Age, Charles Taylor asks, why was it virtually impossible not to believe in God in, say, 1500 in our Western society, while in 2000, many of us find this not only easy, but even inescapable? At one point, get this, the bulk of our accepted authority as a Western society was external. So it was something like God or the Bible or your parents or your heritage, your tradition, whatever it might be. But over time, we've evolved into a self-proclaimed culture of authenticity, meaning the means by which we measure right and wrong is now internal, not external. You are the arbiter of right and wrong. You are the authority. What you think and primarily what you feel is the authority. Or put another way, be true to yourself shall be the whole of the law. Later in that same book, Taylor goes on to write, The understanding of life, which emerges with the romantic expressivism of the late 18th century, that each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity, and that it is important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from outside by society or the previous generation by religious or political authority. It was once the case that... We were raised in the Western world uh, worldview uh, um, in which a life well-lived was determined by something other than ourselves, by an external authority source. That might have been God, the Bible, whatever. And your family and society itself might sort of lead you in the direction of aligning yourself with that vision of said authority. Not across the board, but by and large. Today, external authority is largely assumed to be coercive and controlling and thus inherently bad. 
We no longer crave freedom from tyranny. We, we no longer just want to be free from the tyrannical rule of some overlord. We want freedom from everything, from God, from religion, from our parents, the previous generation, and on down the list it goes. No one has the right to tell us how to live. And the inevitable result is an amoral society because objective moralism is uh, a myth, which then in turn becomes an immoral society. society. After all, no one is allowed to judge the character of anyone else, let alone make any sort of objective truth claims. This is right, this is wrong. Hey, whoa, whoa, no, 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 no. You decide for you, and I'll decide for me. The only remaining virtue is a very strange, very skewed sort of modern idea of tolerance, and the only remaining sin is violating said idea of tolerance. So then enter the disciple of Jesus with his or her worldview that actually there is one creator God, with a vision for a life well-lived for you, for actually each and every one of us. And the disciple of Jesus knows this because we have beheld it through the scriptures, through the teachings of Jesus passed down from generation to generation in the history of the church. And this is not just a vision of a life well-lived. It is the vision of a life well-lived. And it necessitates, get this, the denial of yourself. That is not an easy sell today. And it isn't just a challenge for the church in dealing with the outside world. You know, how do we communicate this to people who've never, who you know, denial of self, no one likes that. This is a tremendous complication inside the church as well. Uh, for example, I am uh, and one of the elders at Van City Church. If you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. But it, among other things, it means that I will be held responsible for a position of authority over a community. That doesn't mean that I'm here to boss anyone around. It just means that in theory, the idea is that I'm here to join in leading and guiding a people into what Jesus called the kingdom of God. And in my few years as a pastor, um, I can already say that there are many within the church who uh, would love the idea of like a buddy or a life coach alone or um, you know, someone that sits up here and tries not to bore them too much for a half hour at a time, something like that, just so long as they don't ask anything of them or suggest that there's a right way to behave and a wrong way to behave or call them to submission under the authority of the teachings of Jesus, as soon as you do that, it's like, hey, what, what, whoa, hey, whoa, 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 what's going on here? We need everyone to do everything. <laughs> I was waiting to bring it back out. It'll catch on. You'll... If, if for no other reason, come back and see if that keeps, keeps coming up. It'll be funny. It's a running gag. But the point is that many, even within the idea, or within the church, balk at this idea of authority, or balk at this idea of submission to the teachings of Jesus, to the authority of the text, even leadership of a church. And such a mentality hamstrings the community of God's people, which is built on submission to one another. It's built on submission to authority and leadership and to ultimately Jesus, the King. So there's hyper-individualism, there's anti-authoritarianism, and finally, the last challenge the church faces as a creative minority is, frankly, hedonism, or the unabashed pursuit of pleasure and self-satisfaction. And few of us think of ourselves as hedonists, I realize, but this millennial slogan that's encroaching on either generation of sort of, if it feels good, then just do it. And uh, who are we to deny ourselves? Don't crucify your desires as Jesus taught. Are you insane? Gratify them. To do otherwise would be inauthentic. Not true to you. That's oppressive. You have to follow your heart. 
And interestingly, sociologists suspect this may have something to do with this strange time in which we find ourselves. Uh, Though science and technology are arguably uh, more advanced than they've ever been, the current generation is marked by a general intellectual decline, I found in my reading these past couple of weeks. This week, in particular, I read that illiteracy in the U.S. is increasing, not decreasing, which is a tad alarming. Most Americans, according to recent surveys, read at a fifth grade level. Um, And get this, 80% of Americans do not read a book to completion following their last year of education. Meaning that if you finish school and you read a book, you're just bucking the trend. Please keep up the good work. I mean, holy cow, man, 80%. The resounding gong, and it's not all because people are illiterate and they just don't care and we may not read good or whatever it might be. <laughs> I think it has more to do with the, the resounding gong of, of information and technology and entertainment overload has actually dulled our intellectual edge to a state of depressing lethargy. Uh, escapism isn't complicated anymore. You don't have to look for a way to escape reality. Avoiding escapism is now the complication. With Think about it. Almost every album in the known world is readily accessible to you through one small affordable app, and people listen to and purchase less music than they ever have in the history of music. <laughs> uh, why read a, a novel, for instance, when you could drain your life with the same amount of hours it would take to read it, Moby Dick, for example, by looking at an utterly meaningless Instagram feed as your brain sort of slips out of your ear. My colors are showing again, I know. Um, Because a book is hard, you know, you have to invest your mind in it. Facebook is much easier. You don't have to invest your mind at all. In fact, it requires that you not do that. And those are just the higher pursuits of the mind in decline. When you start to talk about what Jesus called the hard and narrow road, that's now up against the smartphone and uh, new restaurants and TV shows that you can stream and and beer hobbyists and video games and uh, whatever. All of these things are decidedly simpler than wrestling through Jesus' vision of life to the fullest. And I'm not saying if you do any one of those things and you're not following Jesus, I'm saying they compete for our time. Um, And as a result of all this, the church has begun to disappear. Uh, In his book, Disappearing Church, uh, on on which a tremendous amount of this series has been based, uh, a gentleman named Mark Sayers, do yourself a favor. The book is incredible, way ahead of the curve in terms of its prophetic insight into the Western world and the church. Uh, Mark Sayers opens the book with four vanishings that we have witnessed in the modern world. He says that the Christian worldview is disappearing from the Western world. We've already talked about that in detail. A large segment of believers across the West are abandoning faith altogether. I think it goes without saying that probably most of, if not everyone in here, knows of someone who was at one point actively following Jesus and has since denounced faith in Jesus. In fact, the... Uh, denunciation of faith is becoming the new conversion experience. It's like this high where you finally see the light and you're able to throw off the shackles of your upbringing and reject your faith altogether. Uh, A large number of churches are closing their doors for good. Uh, Statistically, most church plants don't last beyond the first year, right, Cameron? So six months, halfway. We've made it halfway. (laughs) Stop it. Stop it. We'll do that at the year mark. Um, Then Sayers goes on to write, the disappearance of a mode of church engagement characterized by commitment, resilience, and sacrifice among many Western believers is one of the vanishings. In its place, 
a new mode of disengaged Christian faith and church interaction is emerging. This new mode is characterized by sporadic engagement, passivity, commitment phobia, and a consumerist framework. Sound familiar? I mean, good grief. This guy has our number. In the last six months and in the last, frankly, few years of working in a church and leading up to the planting of Van City, I have been feeling this in a major, major way. For those of you who defy this status quo, I mean this so sincerely. I was sitting down with a couple before the gathering and felt like the only way I could word it was just, I love you guys. That those of you who defy the status quo, I cannot begin to describe to you what an encouragement you are. Um, those of you who um, are, are not commitment phobic, who are not passive, and I realize, you know, we're, we're new, people are finding their place, there's different seasons of life, but um, those of you who are here, who are committed, who sacrifice of yourself, man, I think about the people who... Uh, don't even get to come to the gatherings because they go downstairs and serve with the kids who give uh, sacrificially of their finances, of their time, um, give of themselves readily and abundantly. You are honestly an affront to the status quo. And it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, it means the world to me personally. And I know it means the world to not just the leadership at Van City, but to the rest of our community to see you guys serve and sacrifice the way you do. Honestly, thank God for you guys. Uh, even in just six months, we would have already buckled and shut down had it not been for those of you who give so readily. And a, and a tremendous amount of it I don't even see or know about, and we, it means the world to you. And, and none of this stuff is meant as a guilt trip or as an effort to bum anyone out. I know it sounds really intense. We simply want our more for our community, essentially. We want more than just an optional hangout on a Sunday evening. We want to be more than just one among many flavors from a wide buffet of Vancouver churches. I realize that that means that this isn't for everyone, frankly. What we're aspiring to is not for everyone, and people inevitably fall away. Knowing what we're up against, I thought through this this week and the way to recap the series and meditating on some of these really complex and, uh, frankly, challenging themes and I stopped and thought, you know what? At the end of the day, it's still not the end of the world. I, even though a lot of this hits heavy, as I've said throughout the summer, I believe the church does its best work in exile. The, the church does its best work as a small, persecuted minority of people. So to end tonight, I think the church will recognize the beauty of this moment that we're in, will recognize the beauty of exile when it becomes marked by three things in particular. Really quickly, um, don't tune out yet. Pay attention. Stay with me. Oh, how I pray these things over our community. The first thing is to be marked by community instead of individualism. And that is a hard thing to do. We will not make it alone. Again, I don't want to do this by myself. Not only do I have no interest in doing this by myself, frankly, I can't. Following Jesus is always done in the context of a community of people. And exile is too difficult a time to sort of brave it alone. We will either journey together or we'll fall away along the narrow road as we try to go it by ourselves. This is a time to band together and embrace church, what it means to be the people of God much more than an event on a Sunday evening and much more than just people gathered around a table, but not less than either of those things. A family of people with a shared life in the kingdom of God. 
The second way that we will survive exile is with purity instead of anti-authoritarianism. Because the consumer or the lazy or those who sort of dawdle on the fringe, frankly, will not survive this moment of exile. In the language of Jesus, get how hardcore this sounds. In the language of Jesus himself, you are either for him or against him. You are either a goat or a sheep. You are either children of light or children of darkness. The motif carries throughout the entire New Testament. We have seen and will continue to see many sucked into the violent current of what the New Testament calls the world. Um, For others, exile becomes this beautiful moment of uh, sort of purification as we live in community together, not isolated, as we Um, submit together to the authority of the teachings of Jesus and the writings of the New Testament, we'd rediscover what it means to be a human being, to be what Jesus called fully human, life to the fullest. A new kind of purity comes to the church. And finally, the last way that we will defy um, the status quo in this time of exile is with creativity instead of hedonism. Uh, Writer Michael Frost says, The work of exile is to rediscover the teachings of Jesus and the practices of the early church and then apply them to life in the soil of a post-Christian empire. I love that definition. Let me say it one more time. The work of exile is to rediscover the teachings of Jesus and the practices of the early church and to apply them to life in the soil of a post-Christian empire. This takes, frankly, a great deal of creativity. It takes uh, innovation and ingenuity. It takes adaptation. We have to figure out new ways to be the people of God in this unique historical moment in which we found ourselves. What will eventually become our annual vision series is beginning just three weeks from now. And with it, there's this whole new vision for Van City that I could not personally be more excited about. Um, I'm counting down the weeks till we get to talk about it. We've been working on it, testing new ideas behind the scenes. It's been years in the making. Uh, I think it, it will change the way that we do church for the better. And all of that is born out of an exile state of mind about how do we continue to be the people of God in this moment in which we found ourselves. So it takes creativity instead of hedonism. So here we are together in this moment that we found ourselves. It's not ending anytime soon. And we have hope in the future, just like Bethany was talking about last week. Hope in the coming kingdom of God and hope in what Jesus is doing here, this moment in Vancouver. And I think in spite of it all, in spite of the odds stacked against us, in spite of a hostile culture, this is actually a great time to follow Jesus in the Western world, perhaps better than generations before. So to end tonight, I just want to pray for a little bit. Over and over again in Daniel, we watch this motif of Daniel turning to prayer. Um, In fact, some of Daniel's most prolific and effective moments in exile were born from either his willingness to pray or his unwillingness to abstain from prayer weirdly, you know? It's like you don't actually have to go to the window and do this prayer thing. You just want to do that. Hey, more power to you, Daniel. Great job. Prayer, then, I believe, is the single, and hear me on this, is the single most important thing that the church does in its time of exile. 